the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. I'm super excited to have my treasured teacher and mentor, Cindy Brannon, back on the show to talk about her third book, Entering Hecate's Garden. If you're new to Cindy's work, you should know that she is one of the world's foremost experts on Hecatean witchcraft. Her book, Keeping Her Keys, was an instant classic. Those are my words, instant classic. That is what it is. She has a doctorate in applied social psychology and an extensive background in the healing field from academia to health research to her psycho-spiritual healing practices, which are shared very deeply and very generously in her online programs through the Covenant Institute, which you can learn about at keepingherkeys.com. She also has her own podcast called More Than This at the crossroads of modern life and the deeper world with some fabulous podcasts there highlighting favorite goddesses like Persephone and then lesser known ones like Simile. And they're all shared with Cindy's unique perspective. Check out the recent trance journey for Beltane she posted and find it wherever you get your podcasts. So without further ado, let's connect with Cindy and enter the world of Hecate's garden. Cindy, welcome back to the Numinous Podcast. I know friends and fans of the show are as thrilled as I am that you're that you're back, but let's Let's have a reminder. What identities do you lead with? Well, Carmen, I know you lead with this question in your interview. So I've been thinking about it for the past few days. And so this is where I'm at. I received this really wonderful feedback from one of my students, like in my premium uh, program. And this person wrote to me thanking me for being a good example of the admirable qualities of Canadians uh, in the world. Okay. And of course, it was such a sweet thing to say. And I thanked her. And it was, you know, first thing on a Monday morning. And I'm like, you know, thanks so much for starting my week off this way. And for me, it opened up you know, the container within me, within my psyche or my, you know, my personality about my complex feelings about being a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this I, is and juicy since, already. Since you also live in the same country, if we're using that language, mm-hmm. uh, I thought it would be maybe interesting for us just to riff for a few minutes about this. So Please. for me, because, you know, like it was a sweet and beautiful thing to say, but I never lead with being a Canadian. Like I yeah. never lead with it. It's not even on the list of identities. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, so it's like, what identities do I lead with? And, you know, maybe being typical me, I'm like, let's turn the list upside down and go with what's at the bottom of the list. Um <laughs> Um, because for me and where I live in the world, I try to be a good steward of the land and to live in consciousness 
of the history that led me to be a property owner where I live in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, None of it, of course, was my fault. I didn't do any of it. Mm -hmm. I'm not responsible for colonialism. Mm -hmm. But yet here I am. And here I am in traditional Mi'kmaq territory, living on a piece of land that is still very wild and free, um, hasn't been touched, you know, by even something like an organized park, right? You know what I mean? It's very wild and free. And I try to be in communion with the spirits of the land um, in my best way, you know, very imperfect, very well-educated white woman kind of way, but I do my best. I, you know, I try and I, I'm aware of my limitations. And, you know, if someone said, like, what geographical identity do you lead with? I would say I live on the outskirts of a tiny fishing village that was traditionally Mi'kmaq territory. And then I would probably say, well, I live in Nova Scotia. And, you know, it's not like I don't hate Canada. I don't want anybody thinking like I hate Canada. I mean, obviously, it is a great country to live in compared to other countries in the world. So it's not that I dislike Canada or dislike (laughs) being a Canadian. Um, It's just for me, it's really complex. And whenever I contemplate how I feel about citizenship, um, I oh I loop back to that quote. This is I have like a one line explanation for how I feel about it, which I'm going to paraphrase and I'll probably get it wrong. So some people will know this better than me, but I'm going to say it. Uh, Virginia Woolf has a great quote that says, "I am a woman. I own no no country. I'm a woman. I have no country." Mm-hmm. And that I see it that way too. I'm a woman. I have no country. Mm-hmm. Whatever mm-hmm. this is, and all the wonders of Canada. Um, you know, it's a great country, not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's overall, we're pretty fortunate to call Canada home compared to most of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't feel like it's my country at the same time. I get whenever it. Whenever we get sing it. the national anthem, I cry a little and then I get irritated because it <laughs> says God. But, so it's right. complex for me. It's very It complex. really is. I've, I totally feel you on that. I, I totally feel you on that. And yeah, I've had conversations like this over the years with like my husband or different friends where it's like, yeah, how, how would I identify? Personally, I would first identify if I were to be like, where where am I of or from? I'd be like, I'm a um, Southern Vancouver Islander. Like there's mm-hmm. a very particular microclimate living here right. in kind of what I would call, I, I joke, is the California of Canada, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yet, even the way we describe ourselves is like a bedroom community of the U.S. We describe ourselves as the Pacific Northwest. We're not Northwest unless we're American. We are the Southwest of where I live, you know? And so I do feel that imperialism imposed upon myself as a Canadian. It's like, you know, so if somebody were to if I, I would never have like a Canadian flag or describe myself as a proud Canadian in the sense that I'm like, what exactly am I, would I be saying I'm proud of? Like all I think of when I think of nations is imperialism and colonialism. That said, at the same time, Southern Vancouver Island, where I grew up, Duncan, BC, Couch and Valley, I compared that even to where I live, Victoria, which is about an hour away. 
I would say I live in a white, in a segregated community mm-hmm. where like white people live in a certain area and um, the indigenous folks live on reserve or they live out on the peninsula. Whereas where, where I grew up in Duncan, you know, you go into a classic, anybody from Southern Vancouver Island knows the doghouse restaurant. It's a diner that's been there since, you know, the 50s. You go to the doghouse, there's couch and sweaters everywhere. It, it's like, oh, like I, I go to Duncan for a break from the whiteness of Victoria because it's like, right, I grew up in integrated culture where indigeneity was like foregrounded everywhere mm-hmm. around me. And so, yeah, if I were to describe like an identity, a place-based identity, I'd, I'd be like, I grew up in the Couchin Valley. I grew up in Shawnigan. I grew up in the Southern Vancouver Island. I wouldn't even say Victoria where I've lived, you know, a couple of decades with a bit of a break in between in Vancouver. Um, that said, I do enjoy in the times that I've traveled in Europe when I've, you know, been with friends, I, I, we, I, I get along with the Euros pretty well, you know, like I have a lot of clients that are from the UK. I've led workshops in Finland and Sweden. I have dear friends there. There is something that is not American. There is that. And I, and I, and I will say I have, I have dined out on the not American identity um, pretty, pretty well because there is something uh, about, you know, and having studied with um, Michael Newton so much about, you know, my heritage is uh, Scottish Highlands, about how whiteness was created and the cultural shame was imposed upon the Scottish who then, you know, migrated and helped um, colonize Canada and ended up fighting for the fucking Brits that had just displaced them because of that cultural shame. It was kind of like, oh, you know, you can go to Canada and fight for us and you will be um, somewhat restored, even though we've like displaced you from the highlands, etc. And it's like, yeah, I can, I do feel that sense of, um, you know, the Scottish, we were just like looking for a place that kind of felt like home. And a lot of the Highlanders, you know, intermarried with the indigenous folks because the indigenous folks could look and be like, oh, look, they dress differently in their, in their skill, in their kilts mm. and their, you know, tams and all that kind of stuff that it, And so there was a kind of kinship in displacement that feels not American to me, you know, and we, you know, we don't have that same revolutionary spirit uh, that the Americans were able to create that led to a kind of manifest destiny. And for me personally, with my bloodline of the Scots, and I know it was different for the Scottish uh, in what became America, but, you know, it is like, still kind of licking our wounds of the, the, the wistfulness for the homelands of the, the motherland that you can never return to. So I, I, that also makes me more Canadian, that sense of like not Americanness and still kind of licking the wounds. Um, that, that feels very alive for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, uh, so my ancestors were Irish and loyalist, um, which mm. is, an interesting, you know, they were loyal to the crown um, and that founded feels like an oxymoron, um, right? Irish loyalist. <laughs> yeah. No, no. One side was Irish. One side were. Oh, oh okay. Not Sorry, Irish I was loyalist. like, how did they? Irish loyalist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> exactly. I get it. okay. Irish and, and loyal. then loyalist on either and side. Gotcha. Flash and loyalist. Got, yes. So, okay. Um, 
And so that's very interesting um, to kind of have that history. And then um, Acadian, I have Acadian as well. So, you know, it's just, it's really complicated and I really appreciated the compliment. And at the same time, it kind of opened me up to thinking about would I ever want to be seen as a good representative of Canada? which I guess in many ways over the years at conferences and in travels, and even in my books, maybe people do see me as a representative of Canada. But since that's at the bottom of my identity list, yeah, um, I never, I've never considered that. So I really, the kind words were welcome. And also this kind of like reverie on seeing myself like through someone else's eyes. Yeah, right, that, it always, is so it, interesting. It's always a gift when we can see when someone, you know, says something to us. It's like, oh, that's interesting. This is how that individual sees me. And yeah. what can I learn about myself based on what they see, what they see from me? Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's super fascinating. Well, and it's so interesting because when I'm thinking about not American, there, it's such a, you know, there's two sides to that, right? It's like there's a certain kind of pride in like, yeah, I get what they mean by like a certain politeness or a certain hospitality or a certain, you know, we we have more gun control, that kind of, we have a little better healthcare in some ways. But at the same time, the shadow aspect is I would definitely admit to the, um, the, the, the sense of, um, less than, you know, like that America is bigger and better and kind of, sleeker and just there's muchness about it right so and i don't i don't sense this sense this interpersonally most of my clients are american most of my listeners are american i would not find any difference between us sitting at a at a long table having a meal but there is something about america that does feel like the kind of um I don't know, like the older sibling, you know, if you had, a, I don't have any older siblings, but I imagine an older sibling who's like 10 years older than you that like moved out way earlier and like, it's like really established. And <laughs> yeah. you're just like, kind of like, oh, I'm over here kind of puttering, doing my little right. cottage industry over here <laughs> while you like have an entire career. And like, you know, there, I would definitely admit to that feeling of like, uh, you know, the the perception of like nation states, Canada does feel small and less than in so many ways. I would never be like, oh, but Canada is better than America. It's like, oh my God, we have our own problems. Like, talk, let's talk about white supremacy. Let's talk about imperialism. Yeah. Let's talk about that, like for sure. Um, but, you know, I can, I can see the compliment that it's like, yeah, we also have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You, there are some things you can do at a smaller scale that are way difficult. At, at a at a bigger scale. So, but if we're sitting down in a workshop or retreat or at my table, there is no difference between me and an American, as far as I can sense. My dearest friends are American and there's right. we all here. have I, the same. Yeah. I grew up near the main border. Hmm. Um, so for me, like patriotism in the town I grew up in was basically non-existent. Mm-hmm. So as a small child, the first acts of patriotism I saw were the very moving, like American patriotism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, and that it, it is very moving and very beautiful in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. To see that kind of love, that affection yeah. expressed for something in a very reverential way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it. 
I'm glad we've had this this chat about the Canadian identity, and I appreciate you bringing up, you know, the kind of the Canadian, like that element that we are somehow stuck in constant chronic social comparison with yes. Americans, which you and I <laughs> both know from a psycho-spiritual perspective is not healthy. Canada no. needs to carve out her own identity. Totally. hundred percent. Individuation, Canada. That's what you need. Exactly. Exactly. And can I, you talked about like crying. So I cry in the national anthem every time. Uh, I have taken a knee on behalf of like, again, that spirit of protest that yep. Americans have that Canadians are so shit at that, that inspires me. So like I have been on my knee um, at, at the parliament buildings for, I think it was when um, William and Catherine came to town. Cause again, I'm not a monarchist, but I am a royalist. I, I, I do know a lot about the Royal families because they, you know, they're real people. Um, and so I'm fascinated by their lives, but fuck the monarchy and let's abolish that anyway. But let me go back to the, so they came to town we're singing the national anthem. We're singing God Save the Queen. I, my husband and I are with hundreds on the parliament um, legislature lawns, and we take a knee because it's like, yeah, we can't get down with this. That's set. At a hockey game, I will stand. Even watching it on TV, I will stand and I cry. You know why? Because of all those parents who were up at 5 a.m. I'm going to choke up right now taking their kid to the rink to get them and all the times they've stood and sung the national anthem, to me, that actually is Canada. Canada, to me, is the Hockey Night in Canada anthem coming on <laughs> you know, <laughs> at night and like running in because Ron McLean and Don Cherry were on and like Ron McLean is one of the best guys ever. Like, <laughs> it's like that is Canada to me is like small town, rural Canada that unites around you know, it's it's a Tom Cochran song, right? My kid's going to the big league. It's a huge yeah. thing. So I think about those prairie boys and those island boys, how many hours I spent at the rink. That actually is Canada to me. It's like small town hockey culture. That's, inter that, that's interesting. And all the drinking and good old boy shit that goes along with it. You know what? That's right. Canada too. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think Canada does have a really distinct culture, but I, I and I also think one of the biggest challenges for like a Canadian wholeness and identity is that we're so diverse, you know, like mm -hmm. you and I are farther away on this zoom call, like than if one of us was in France. Yeah, totally. Then, then my right? Irish. Yeah. My, well, my like, Irish yeah, friends. You know, yeah. If I stayed here in Nova Scotia yeah. and you know, you're further away from me now than if you were actually in France. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think our size works against us because I do think here in Nova Scotia, you know, there is a, like, there is a cultural identity here and I am mm -hmm. from this place, you know, like my ancestors um, came here, both the Loyalists and the Irish that, you know, to a small Island called Cape Sable Island. And mm -hmm. I have, a, you know, I have a genealogy um, surrounding that. And also, you know, the Acadian side that comes from a very, mm -hmm specific small corner of this big planet mm -hmm. so I feel do feel Nova Scotian Scotian proud right yeah whereas like here I am we're late contact the indigenous folks I'm not saying that they haven't had to 
scrape to to stay a, alive and keep their cultures alive. But actually, there was still potlatch happening. You know, pretty. It's been pretty intact um, relative to the East Coast. So when you have late contact, there is a you know um, a sense of like I'm I'm very much visiting here. <laughs> I'm an uninvited visitor, even though my people have lived in the same val- valley or like the same lower part of the island within an hour of here uh, for three generations. It, it's not we don't have that um, like the the Gallic, the Acadian, the the um, settler culture is very mm. different east to west for for sure. Um, Definitely, yeah. and I think like you you kind of started by saying where you live is sometimes seen as like. The California, Canada. Yeah. But Nova Scotia is very much similar to New England. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. culturally, geographically, seasonally, you know, all the things that are, mm-hmm. it's like we're much more akin to Maine yeah. than like Ontario or Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yeah. So, for it, sure. you know, Canada is just such a big old country. Yeah. 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 And there aren't as many of us, you know, Americans yeah. listening are probably like, oh, well, that's the same as California, Maine. It's like, no, no. But like now make it a 10th. <laughs> so there's just like wave the, the, the transmission and the intergenerational transmission of knowledge just gets more siloed. You know, it's not exactly as, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an overlay of what's happening in America. It has its own kind of ecosystem. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was awesome. Thank you for starting us there. Thank you for indulging me. No, I love it. It's so good. Okay. We're here to talk about entering Hecate's garden, the magic medicine and mystery of plant spirit witchcraft. Oh my gosh. I love this book. And um, as I've told you before, I purchased it immediately because I wanted to be one of the people that was like, had your book as soon as possible and encouraged other people to buy it too. And then I had to set it aside because I was writing my own book and I didn't want to be overly influenced. I was already, uh, as I was finishing up the manuscript, I started mentoring with you and was aware. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of similar things, but your book is going to be one of those encyclopedic tomes that is so timeless that generations of witches are going to say, oh, you know that book? And everybody's going to know this book. Entering Hecate's Garden is like the next generation reference book for um, both beginner and and experienced uh, witches alike because you have, you have done this beautiful um, updating of a, of a more... I, I would say it's like a, another wave, and I don't know how many waves of feminism we're really into now, but like it's the next wave of really personalizing um, the, the deities that we have grown up with. And like uh, you've brought research that has, is so crucial, I think, to us restoring the place of um, the uh, woman magician, the woman healer, the, the woman... Um, uh, pharmacist really. And, um, so you begin your book with a prologue called Medea's truth. Tell us about Medea, like who she is and your relationship to her. Why did you choose to let Medea speak first? Well, I'll just contextualize entering Hecate's garden a little bit. I was struck with 
a translation of the story of, of Jason and his Argonauts, where the garden, so central to the myth, so Jason is a hero. If you don't know the story, Jason's a hero, goes on a bunch of quests, does a lot of things, becomes a prince, blah, blah, blah. It's a pretty typical hero's journey story, um, which I've, I mean, I'm certainly like I've studied um, Joseph Campbell and I'm familiar with the hero's journey. And in some ways I used to think it was semi-helpful for helping people make sense of their own narrative. <laughs> but several years ago, I became interested in like the heroine's journey, like the <laughs> female version of it. And there's a lot of feminist scholarship around that. Um, and at the same time, kind of as I went deeper into the work I do, thinking about even the word heroine is defined in terms of the hero. Mm -hmm. So what is, and so like my kind of like private catchphrase um, for these other stories, I say it's a, a widow of Heracles. It's a widow of Hercules's story, mm. right? You know, because the hero is doing all these things and there are all these women that are playing secondary roles mm -hmm. to the hero in these classic myths, plays and so on that have persisted for over 2000 years. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they're widows, the ex-wives, I just say widows just as a catchphrase for all of those women mm -hmm. um, who are, who appear in this story to serve, um, you know, to advance the hero's work. Mm -hmm. And certainly in most of the, the, the tellings of the story of Jason and his Argonauts, Medea is a figure that emerges in the story um, because Jason needs some help. So she's there mm -hmm. to serve his needs. And they go to a garden where there is a magical dragon serpent that is protecting um, something super special, a sheepskin. It's like, well, you could get it at Ikea. Anyway, but, it um, but it's a super The golden fleece, skin. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the golden fleece that will give him powers and make him more heroic. And he dupes her into um, doing what I would call natural magic, um, pharmakeia, which, you know, is using the natural world to evoke change. And so he gets, she charms the serpent and Jason gets the, the fleece and so on. There's a whole lot more to the story, but in the sun translations, that garden is called Hecate's garden. It's also called Artemis's garden, but there is a whole thing with Hecate and Artemis being very interwoven in different um, parts of the ancient Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. that I don't think it's difficult for us to kind of understand because we like to silo deity. I don't mm -hmm. personally, but I think in general, we like mm -hmm. to silo deity, but Hecate Artemis was a figure. So when I saw that that was Hecate's garden and it lists like 60 plants that were in the garden, it was one of those, like I was speaking of Campbell, it was a bliss moment. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It was like it yeah. thrummed, it had a life and it was like, you know, looking at, um, you know, in that reading the, what I was reading, it was like a whole garden bloomed out of the mm -hmm. book and welcomed me in, mm -hmm. uh, right? And 
it was Hecate's garden. And Medea was the queen of this garden. Hmm. Um, because Medea, um, whether you know Euripides' play or Margaret Atwood did a retelling, there hasn't been a popular retelling of Medea in the spirit of like Madeline Miller's Circe mm -hmm. um, or Kerke, however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, about five years ago, I was like, was really into Medea at the time. I was just thinking about like what, because no one had written about her in all of our amazing goddess reclaiming, like you mentioned, like those texts that came out in the 60s, 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. 90s. Um, you know, Marion Woodman and uh, Jean Shinoda Bowen, like all mm -hmm. of these, Demetra George, all of these women who were out there yeah. reclaiming the goddess for us, me and my stack of books and, you know, like on the Kindle, like looking through, <laughs> it's like nobody touched Medea. Hmm. Well, because the... the, the yeah, she, did I mean, kill she had some bad PR. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she went... <laughs> pretty at least in the tellings she goes nuts right and so yeah right but but, I, but we have a more trauma-informed lens now and so we can empathize with people yeah. so me from my trauma-informed lens looking at Medea's story and wanting to reclaim her personally I wrote an article back when I used to blog um, and I put like, I poured my heart and soul into this. I don't, you've probably written something like this and you're like, oh, I'm just giving it all. Like, you know, Medea is wonderful. And yes, I know people may not consider her a goddess, but to me she is. And here's what I believe her story stands for. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited and nobody read it. <laughs> nobody but you know what I mean like it wasn't mm -hmm. a big yeah it wasn't a big thing right and I was like I just think that there is so much for us to learn from the figure of Medea mm -hmm. right there's so much there there is it is a ripe rich field of trauma of trickery mm -hmm. of coercive control on Jason's part yes um and that in understanding what the gaslighting, you know, all I'm putting all mm -hmm. these modern terms on, on it, you know, the mm -hmm. gaslighting, the coercive control, the mm -hmm. manipulation. He mm -hmm. took her from her home mm -hmm. um, and used her in all to do to achieve his goals. Mm -hmm. And when she was no longer useful to him, he cast her aside in the myth. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. about it's a story. Um, mm -hmm. So in the myth, he casts her aside. I mean, she even brought his father back from the dead. Totally. I mean, the woman, yeah, she did. She did everything he asked and and more. And, and then, he just keeps taking and taking and betrays her, lies, betrays again and again. And so in, in the end of the story, you know, I think why Medea gets vilified is because of the um, infanticide that she killed her children. Mm -hmm. but. From a like critical modern lens, understanding both like how that story can be reinterpreted from her perspective, mm -hmm. and also, um, you know, like 
in a literary sense, understanding what, you know, those who wrote about the Medea figure were talking about. Like, I think she had no choice. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, it reminds me of the movie based on a real life story, Monster. Remember Charlene's mm, Throne? Yeah. And I can't remember the real woman's name, but it's like, yeah, we we can empathize with these women women pushed to the brink, you know. And but I think you know, like I, but I think it takes a lot of sophistication, and it requires mm-hmm. us to be deep into our own healing journey mm-hmm. um, to be able to say, "I understand the Medea mm-hmm. character. I understand how." I mean, I'm a woman. I do lead with that identity as being a cisgendered white woman. Um, I understand, and a single mother, I understand how a woman can be manipulated. I mean, there's the new show <laughs> on Netflix. I think it's called Bad Vegan, mm-hmm. which is a story of co- it, coercive control it. too, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, you can, and one side, it's like, how could she do what she did? How could she be so stupid? I mean, we always we're always in a rush to call a woman stupid when someone else abuses her, right? Like, yeah, if yeah. you get robbed, like yeah. no one says like you're your swindler kind of stuff. Yeah, you know what I yeah. Mean? But if women. a woman mm-hmm. gets into a bad situation at the hands of a man, she's stupid. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. innocent. Mm-hmm. He can just take his golden sheepskin and do whatever he wants. Totally. Or if not innocent, we expect that of men. Right. It's like that. This is not to be. This is not man. unexpected. Yeah, he, that's men. Men will do these things, or it's some like men them. will do these things, and she yeah. should have known. And it's, but it's it's similar to uh, Alexandra Stain when she talks about people don't join cults; they just delay leaving communities and charismatic leaders who lie to them. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> these are not dumb women; these are people who have been lied to and manipulated in like egregious ways. So yeah, and you know, and seeing that Medea as being like in Hecate's garden, um, obviously like there are connections, historical connections between this story of this great Hecate's garden and Jason and Medea and the dragon, you know, and a parallel to the Christian creation story, right? Mm -hmm. There are obvious parallels there, you know, and again, thinking culturally, it's like we keep in our modern time, we keep retelling the Batman story from slightly different lenses, you know? So, so it's like, you know, the ancients were not different from us. They kept making right. a new Batman until they got one everybody liked. Um, <laughs> so funny. So, you know, I really wanted to explore that. And in my teaching, we do a lot of shadow um understanding like we learn to be in relation to our shadow and to not reject the shadow Mm -hmm. not to reject our darkness but to see us as a blend of darkness and light and I felt that leading the book with Medea a very difficult character Mm -hmm. um would perhaps to see her as like the sentry to the garden in Mm -hmm. a way almost like challenging you right from the get-go Um, And to set the stage that although this is in many ways, a good chunk of the book is a very practical and accessible book of formulas and rituals that anybody can do. But for me, like 
the Medea introduction, she is the propylaea, which is a term that means both the gate and the gatekeeper. Mm. Um, She is the propylaea. If you can't get through the introduction, then the book is not for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, like since I started teaching in my courses about Medea, she has come through as a spirit that really helps women in particular work with their shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, that Medea as a figure is a kindred spirit to all of the times we have harmed others. And, you know, if we are serious about our self-healing, then we have to acknowledge the times that we have harmed others. We have to acknowledge that like Medea, we too may have been duped, those of us who've gone through significant trauma in our life, that we have been duped and that we may have acted in a way to get out of a situation that harmed others. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. mean, you know, in the extreme, like some of the examples we've talked about, Mm -hmm. but I mean, like, to hold space for our totality. I think that's what Medea as a spirit does to hold space for our totality, which is very difficult, I think, because we live in a world that is obsessed with the solar, you know, mm-hmm. with what is bright, with, you know, like success climbing up a stairway, um, you know, bright, sunny goddesses, nothing wrong with them. I love them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, especially from a deaf psychology perspective, if you don't learn to sit down and have tea with Medea, you were always going to be getting burned by too mm. much sun. And so that's why I wanted her to write the introduction, you know, because when you're like, people are like, well, who's going to write the introduction to your book? Mm-hmm. And one day it was as though her and Circe were standing behind me at my desk and Medea just kind of whispered in my left ear, of course, I will. If you'll let me. So I had a lot of fun with it. I wasn't sure if the publisher of the book would be on board with it. Um, and I was willing to, you know, it be a battlefield for me. Um, and I didn't have, they loved it. They loved mm. the way it set the tone for the book. And I wanted to write an herbal that really stretched myself. I'm, you know, not a fiction writer. I'm not a poet. Yet, you know, the book starts with Medea's story. And then throughout the book, I have little attempts at poetry. Because for me, the practice of pharmaca, which is an identity I would lead with, but although it, but it's been corrupted into meaning something completely mm. different than a holistic practitioner of natural magic that is, you know, rooted in uh, caring for others mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. through words, plants, and so on. You know, like I would lead with pharmaca. Mm-hmm. But but people think that I'm going to try to give them a new antidepressant if I say that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there's this, all this business. So I, all of that was really present with me in a very tangible sense, mm-hmm. that spirit of Medea. Mm-hmm. How dare they? They, you know, they took what Cersei and I were pharmaca and made it into something 
that is not at all in the spirit of what that word meant Mm -hmm. to the ancients. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a beautiful way to open. Right? Mm -hmm. Because, and I didn't want to write, start with Circe because of the popularity of the novel. Mm. which is brilliant mm-hmm. and can't be taught you know what I mean like that mm-hmm. um but it's always interesting to me that so I wrote the article in Medea before that a few months I wrote a, an article on Circe who I called Kerke at the time and spelled it with the case mm-hmm. um before the novel came out the novel comes out like six weeks later I had no conscious awareness that this novel was coming mm-hmm. um of course read it right away um And I was like, oh, like in my small way, I'm riding that current of something greater that is Mm -hmm. happening in Mm -hmm. our Western world right now, where we are at a place where we are growing more comfortable with complex female characters, and we don't need her to be the heroine in the sense of she's in the hero, you know, like she's in the story mm-hmm. with the hero, mm-hmm. but her story is she marries the hero mm-hmm. or she's mm-hmm. a sad, lonely, lonely figure, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. Medea, like to uh, no isolation and exile and to find your place on your Island or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the journey. Like that mm-hmm. is, I think, and I, you know, and I try to talk from my perspective as a cis white woman, but for me, as someone who's always felt on the fringe of society and never fit in, that's the journey I'm on is to Mm -hmm. find my own story Mm -hmm. in the web of all of us living in Jason's story or Odysseus. Totally. And just in the, in the patriarchy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, you know, and the uh, yeah, goddesses and every woman, the, the, like Jean Shinoda Bolin, when I got to spend workshop times with her, she like, yeah, they, they've been trying in their own way. I think of uh, a huge influence on my work is Charlene Spretnak, who wrote The mm. Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, right? And so, yeah, the way that we can read between the lines of the patriarchal narratives, the versions, and now we can layer, you know, the research of Maria Gimbutas and like, it's like generations now of like feminist scholars in mythoarchaeology. And, and, and so you're bringing similar work, right. Of like, let's actually talk about who Hecate really was and get outside of Jason and the Argonauts, by the way, all the dudes, Hercules and all that, that were supporting him as well. There's, there's all these like supporting male characters, but then they all get their spinoffs. It's like fucking Marvel universe of all these (laughs) people. And we're finally able to have our black widows and our, you know, like other characters come forward. So like the, the time is super ripe for for this um like you said you're picking up on a thread that has been like slowly trying for like thousands of years um when you talked about the overlay between artemis and hecate it reminded me i i went to a lecture there was like a traveling lecture you you probably have read 
um, her research, who was researching Hecate in as like an Anatolian um, deity, and like how did she become? How, where did she come from before the Greeks? And she kind of described, oh well, the bards at that time would, you know, so all these goddesses are very local and regional, but they would the the bards would all meet up at kind of like the Lollapalooza or Coachella of bards. And she said, essentially, they would have what I'm going to call rap battles. It's right. like, well, this is our Hecate. And here's how she behaves where we're from. And like, she fucked your dad or whatever. That kind of thing. And, like, and it's like, the, so another bard would say, oh, well, here's our Hecatean type anima mundi type goddess. And like, and, and they would respond. And this is why sometimes in the end, when you get these, like um, the Homeric or the Orphic, you know, these things, it's like, well, actually these are like rap battles and they've been all brought together into one song. And so this is why that, you know, Hecate can be so many different things. And, and it's because it was like regional and local. And so that overlay of Artemis and Hecate, I mean, it, it just makes sense to me, right? It's like, yeah, we have these like regional things. It's like what we're talking about, what is Canadian, right? It's like, well, <laughs> are you on the West Coast or on the East Coast? Like, right. how do we bring it all together? So the ancients had the same kind of problem. Like, what's the identity of this uh, deity? And then, of course, we have the 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 Kurgan invasions. And now it's like, oh, it's patriarchy. <laughs> we're gonna tell we're gonna reduce all of this to one story. It's gonna be the patriarchy story. And now these are all sort of sub-characters. And so yeah, your work I see is very much in the couple thousand year, um, many several thousand year uh tradition of healers, teachers, wise people who are who are literally just looking at the original text and being like, no, it's obvious to anyone that she has her own life and why she does this. Like the patriarchal overlay is so easy to just pull back and be like, come on, guys. Like <laughs> she's a much fuller character than than what you're trying to say. Like here's the details, right? So I really appreciate I appreciate that. And you say that Circe's true self was only fully revealed through triumph over trauma. And so this is kind of what we're trying to do now is like, can we triumph over the trauma of 2000 years of patriarchy? Um, but tell us specifically about Circe. How do you see her as triumphant? So, well, before we move on to Circe, um, I want to show you one thing because you and I are on video so you can see. So yeah. when I wrote Entering Hecate's Garden, um, so I am a mostly plant-based person um, and generally restrict my use of animal products a great deal. But when I was writing Entering Hecate's Garden, I did something. I reclaim that fleece. The golden fleece. I see the sheepskin. It's beautiful <laughs> it's on your chair. On the back of my desk chair um, as a reminder. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. A reminder that the patriarchy, for the most part, serves very few people well. We all get caught up in it and can be its agents. And mm -hmm. the way for us to use like a mythopoetic poetic perspective and to learn from these stories, whether it's the Marvel Universe today or, um, you know, the Homeric Hindu Demeter written almost 3000 years ago is like to carve out our piece of them 
and claim it for ourselves because there is so many ways to experience these really rich stories. So I reclaimed and got myself a fleece for the back of my chair. So every day I, I sit here and I think my work is to reclaim that fleece, to undo the trickery that was done to Medea that made her defeat the serpent because of course the serpent Dracana, um, you know, the, the serpent was sacred to the goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, you know, so this was, he used her to, t- he turned her against one of her allies in that story. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, again, that is partly my interpretation, but it's also when you consider the writer, the, the ones who recorded these stories that were come from an oral tradition, um, they would have well and fully known mm-hmm. that to put a serpent there even and to portray it as evil, mm-hmm. um, that that was connected to the sacred feminine. The serpents have always been connected to the sacred feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the story, of course, of Eden, where the sacred feminine, again, you know, Eve is a Medea character in that story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why I have a golden fleece on my chair because I it's love like, it. just remember that you you can make a different decision in your life and you can keep the golden fleece for yourself. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Do it. Do it. Okay. I think a lot of us struggle with that idea. It's like, no, you can keep the power for yourself. Sovereignty, yeah. right? Sovereignty. <laughs> As a symbol of sovereignty um, onto our Cersei and triumphing over trauma. So Medea's story in kind of like the, the way things were told in the traditional versions of the story, there was no triumph for Medea. You know, in different, she, in some versions, she kind of flies off in this awesome dragon chariot. But in other versions, she ends up remarried and in a similar kind of shit show. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Cersei, and it's difficult to, like, to look at um, the Odyssey, how she's talked about in the Odyssey and other ancient sources, because the, the novel, the modern novel, has become, you know, so part of our cultural fabric, I think. But in the original story of Odysseus, um, you know, Cersei is a sorceress, a pharmaca, if you look at the, the actual word. Um, and she is on this island, living the dream. Right? (laughs) (laughs) At least my dream. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, you know, she, and and of course there's a different story when she's younger and there's a problem, but, but, but if we stick to the, the, the Odysseus story, um, then she is this character She's just minding her own damn business. Mm-hmm. Didn't go looking for trouble, but trouble found her. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, we like her already. We like her already, <laughs> right? And, you know, and so Jason and his sailors show up and are assholes, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's her place. Like, they come into her home and invade her space and fuck up her life. It's like, does it sound familiar to like 40% of women? Yes, it does, right? I mean, we're laughing about it because we both know trauma, right? Like yeah. we know trauma. 
Yeah. Uh, so it's okay. We're not laughing because we're belittling it. It's like, yeah, it's the same no, story. It's like, would you, yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah, welcome to my childhood. Yeah. Right? right? Totally. Um, yeah, 100%. So, but through the like, kind of the classical story, so the men come, they're jerks. She does what I call a revelation spell where they, their true nature as pigs is revealed. She didn't turn them into pigs that already were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Odysseus stays with her for a piece. Um, and they develop even in the, the Odyssey, you know, like it's a story where she, she kind of goes in the story from being naive to clever to wise, right? So mm. she kind of embodies, you know, the, the, the triplicity, I think, of feminine, with a mm. femi- the sacred feminine, you know, naive, mm-hmm. maiden, clever, mother, wise, crone. She goes through this arc and she because she eventually sends Odysseus away. And he has to go on his own underworld journey. So it's a very crony thing to do in a mm-hmm. one of these stories is to send the man onto the next level of his journey. And if he has to go to if he has to go down to Hades Town, um, you know, that's that's a very powerful spirit that sends that sends that the hero in that direction. So for the writer of the story. You know, that's, you know, that progression of Circe would have been known to them that, you know, like Mm -hmm. only very important people send you to the underworld. Right. But she was traumatized, right? Like, um, by the whole experience. But at the end, the fact that she becomes the one who says, Odysseus, you got to go and do this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So she could have. I mean, if we compare her to sometimes in the myth, Medea is her sister, sometimes she's her aunt, it depends, but they are family from the same family. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like Medea was treated very differently and backed into a corner where Circe had this space to become wise Mm -hmm. and to triumph over her tragedy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, to be the one who sends Odysseus off instead of trying to keep him or harm him. Mm-hmm. that you know you've done your men we did not get off to a good start here <laughs> but over t- but over time you know she found her footing mm-hmm. and i think i ultimately became a sovereign kind of crone figure in the mm-hmm. in the in the odyssey in in talking about that story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love that i love that it's such a relatable it's relatable content um so speaking of content, there are so many fantastic spells and rituals in your book. It's a, a, an amazing reference book. Um, I personally am particularly charmed by all the references to the Moss Queen. I was like, this is this is a new archetype for me. Like I've never and, – and she comes up several times. It's like, oh, I love her. Um, and there – is this uh, gnosis chapter where we're like getting into our own relationships? Um, I have a very personal and deep connection with roses, so the way you lifted up roses felt like oh, like this. This is a person who really gets the you know. There's a lot written about roses, but I often find it's like almost pedestalizing, or I don't know. There's like something that's a bit distancing, whereas I feel a very personal. 
uh, relationship. Um, and so when you illuminated the relationship between roses and Hecate, I was like, oh, this is really special. This is like a, a unique lens that you don't see everywhere. And then you have very cool stuff like the, the fierce love potion, which is rosemary simple syrup. Rosemary is, we have a huge rosemary bush outside. Uh, it's like a shrub size. It's, it's five feet tall. And we, you know, and my husband and I use that for marriage rituals. We use it for, we'll like cut off a big branch when we prune it in, in around this time of year. And we like, you could call it fumigated or we, we sane the garden. We like set it on fire the whole, you know, it, it's, it's so such a dear ally to mine. And then you paired it with Aperol. <laughs> and I was like, yes, it was like very much my jam. So I had, uh, just a ton of things that I was like, oh, these are my new favorite, you know, rituals, allies, archetypes, deities, devas I'm going to work with. It's such a full book, though. I'm curious, what are your personal favorites? What are the things that you were like, someday I'm going to put in one of my books, this thing that I love. And like, maybe I can't write a whole book about that, but it's going to show up. Like, what are your sort of little personal favorite superstars in the book? It's difficult to pick one because, you know, I do, like I see plants and spirits that we can develop conscious relationships with. And I also see the formulas themselves becoming a spirit with as a mm. consciousness. So when you talk about, um, you know, like the fierce love potion, I'm like, oh yeah, she's a fiery one. And you know what I mean? Like she's a fun, fiery one. And I wanted to include something. I love Aperol. Aperol. Um, and I love simple syrups. And I thought this isn't a book of magical cocktails, but I want to give like, here's a, you can make a magical cocktail. So there's 39 monographs and there's 39 different techniques in the book. Um, so, which I think is less obvious because when you say, you know, it's monograph based, it's not technique based, mm -hmm. but there is 39 and 39 different ways of working with plants. Um, it's amazing. So I love the fierce love potion. Um, I would say for me, because I've been on a, such a journey with this particular formula is the death walking oil. Mm, the, you know, and I, sometimes I'm like, why did you call it this? Such a heavy <laughs> name, such an off putting name. You know what I mean? Like, um, but I think perhaps not in a, in a very imperfect way. I was talking about like giving death to the illusion of separation, giving death to um, a way of being in the world and, you know, walking in the world of spirits, communing with ancestors, going into the numinous, going into Hecate's garden, giving death to like this rational, logical self. Mm. Um, though I don't think I did a fantastic job articulating what I was talking about in the book. Um, but the death walking oil is really interesting. So the death walking oil in my school, my online network, is we call it oleum spirita, um, which just means spirited oil. And it's our base oil that we kind of, we walk all 13 lunar months and we work with it in different ways because we do a plant a month. So we add a plant every month and mm. 
do a bunch of things. Why I love that death locking oil. Like I remember the first time I made it years ago, it was a kitchen and it still had those coil burners. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it still yes. had those coil burners. And I had been working on different, I, like a sovereignty oil. I wanted something for me that was like a primary oil. Mm. And I am obsessed with natural, like wild asters. They grow, I call mm. my house Aster Cottage. Um, they grow all around here and I've always loved them since I was a small child and would spend summers at my grandmother's. And so I put Aster in it. Uh, most of the other things I think you can buy commercially. I didn't really like when I made it, I made it for myself and I didn't really realize that you can't buy com- like dried Aster is not a thing that people can buy. <laughs> Mm. right mm-hmm. not a thing yeah. um maybe a few retailers on etsy so when i first decided that this is going to be like the the core oil i teach um and even now we make it every fall because asters bloom in september october right so you can only mm-hmm. make the thing at one time of the year to do to make the whole recipe um and you got to go out you got to do some wild foraging Mm-hmm. and the rest of the oil is pretty straightforward. I mean, there's a lot, there's kind of a lot in it, but most of the stuff you can get, you know, it's just like a ro- wild rose blossom. So this, I can make this out of my garden without spending a penny. Mm-hmm. And I wanted kind of like the heart of what I teach to be something like if you are a so-so gardener like me and you live in a so-so climate like I do, all of these things you can grow or they will be naturally there in North America for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get really excited. And you can probably tell just by my voice when I start to think like, Oh, September's coming and they're <laughs> going to be making it again. And, you know, yeah. every year, brave, brave souls, um, you know, like to see them make it. I mean, people will send me photos like that they've done it, you know, on their own that aren't part of the school. But like the brave, brave souls that are like, yeah, I'm going to get me some fresh asters and I'm going to make this oil. Like it just, it does it. It does it for me. (laughs) Because, you know, to get reconnected to the natural world, I think is like, that's the key, right? I do think that's how we really get back to who we really are. So that is my favorite oil. Hmm. Um, so put that in your calendar, everybody watching and listening. Totally. I think yeah. here where we live, we call them Douglas Asters or yeah. Western Asters, and they're often purples or blues. And yeah, there's like a little bush out uh, out on the boulevard where I live. And I've actually tried to, you know, sow seeds and just be like, maybe they'll just grow. But actually, I will need to collect seeds and like tend it a little bit more because they didn't just grow as easily as I sort of thought they might Um I do right, have a, a, a student, like someone on the, actually, she's on the leadership team now. She uh, started cultivating asters. Now she's in Colorado, so it's going to be a different species. I think that's mm-hmm. the other beautiful thing about asters is that although yeah. they are wild, they are on the side of your road. <laughs> yes. In September, <laughs> They're like October, a ditch flower. Yeah. They are there. <laughs> Look for this purplish blue flower that kind of looks like a daisy kind of thing. Sort of, um, Yeah. Um, <laughs> That there's so many different varieties. So she's actually been able to get it. Like she has a healthy plant growing in mm-hmm. a pot in her house, which I think is oh, amazing. So amazing. you can cultivate them indoors. 
Um, Indoors. That's amazing. Yeah, I know you can get seeds from West Coast seeds out here if listeners are on the, the, the left coast. Yes. And you can totally use the seeds in the oil if you can't. Like, it's fine. And I also right. love seeing how people uh, create workarounds. Yeah. You know, like asters are related to chrysanthemums. Can I use chrysanthemums? Yeah. And I'm like, well, if you feel that's right for you, do it. This is not like, this isn't liturgical. You yeah. Know, this, this is my formula. And mm-hmm. you can adapt it as you see fit. But I'll tell you, if you go out and get the asters, connect to what aster is and the spirit of stars falling to earth mm. and just get into the myth of that, what an aster is, it's mm. going to, it'll tra- transform you mm. and it won't cost you a nickel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you, so yeah, you buy the book, but I mean, right. even of if course. you just listen to this podcast, which costs you nothing, put it in yeah. your calendar, go find yourself some asters in North America, September, October. And just enjoy yeah. their they're beautiful. And they're so overlooked. I love I wanted to highlight plants in the book that have this rich and beautiful mythological connection or um, folklore connection. You know, some to get into that. Mm-hmm. You're like, look, you know, there is juniper in the parking lot at your local <laughs> Denny's or Swiss yeah. Ballet in Canada. Yeah. Um, they put it like it's there. Yeah, you know, yeah. like in a perfect world, yes, if you, you, you know, you could get juniper, like the juniper that grows naturally here. But like in your world, let me tell you, there it's is a parking juniper. lot. Yeah, it's a traffic island <laughs> shrub. Yeah, it's a traffic island parking lot shrub. Gas station roses, those work fine right? for different things. Yeah, yeah, totally. So in, and, and it's just that disconnect. Like we see landscaping as not magical. Mm-hmm. Or even like mm-hmm. Bay Laurel, which has such so yeah. much history, so much yeah. magic. Um, and, you know, and people, um, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. And then it's like, have reverence mm-hmm. for these things. Yeah, like just because it's in the hedge outside your doctor's building, office. Using them as yeah. medicine, Bay Laurel is crowns and medicine. And it's still here with us today. And mm-hmm. we should hold it in reverence. Totally. The spirit onto itself, right? That means something. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I so appreciate that. So I'm curious about what the process of bringing this book into the world was like for you. Like, why was its creation so important? How does it fit into the overall arch of your career? And of course, I I would love it if you would tell us what's next for your writing. Okay, so for this book, I knew I wanted to write an herbal. I've wanted to write one for quite some time. And I had a lot of monographs, a lot of notebooks, a lot of like old, just, you know, coil notebooks with like, you know, lines drawn with markers and the ruler. And then I had developed over the years like written monographs that I would share with my Maybe you should define monograph. It's just occurring to me if people don't. Yeah, go ahead, please. So monograph is um, a descriptive article on, um, in the context of plants, it'll provide you with information about the genus of the plant, um, its signatures, like what element, what sign it's involved in and it's different um, applications like physical 
spiritual, magical, and and it might might also contain like different formulas, different ways you could work with it. And it, a good one will have contraindications, you know, like cautions if, how not to work with the plant, for example. So that's a monograph. It's just basically it's information. It's not there's not a lot of theory. You know, it, it's just here's the story. Here's a bit of background and here's some things you can do with it. So thank you. That's what a monograph is. Um, so I had a bunch of those, um, much more than what ended up in the book. And they felt like they had a vibrancy to them. And I want, I only write books that are the books I want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. So when I wrote the Keeping Her Keys book, there were no books on Hecate. Um, and there really, for me, it seemed like there was a paucity of good books that used like a psycho-spiritual approach that was actually grounded in someone who understood such things um, mm-hmm. and witchcraft mm-hmm. and Hecate. And mm-hmm. I was really, I had a really profound uh, experience with Hecate as a spirit coming to me, like kind of out of the blue. And I, so I wrote that book and then I wrote Entering Hecate's Garden about that. And so I wrote books that I wanted. I think at times people might perceive, you know, that I go around doing rituals to Hecate all the time, you know, <laughs> that I have this kind of reputation in the world for being this like Hecate and Hecate all the time. And it's like, I see Hecate as a face of a great goddess, um, you know, but not in any kind of dogmatic sense, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I always find that interesting that, you know, it's like, I'm the Hecate expert. And it's like, well, I didn't really intend for that to happen. And (laughs) I don't really want to be, you know, I want to be me over here doing my teaching and writing the way from this kind of crossroads of modern life in the deeper world that I'm very much embedded in. Um, I'm a social psychologist by training and I will always be like a program deliverer, someone who develops a good program, tests it out with people, um, refines it, keeps going. And we're using a lot of these psycho-spiritual constructs, sovereignty, openness, transformation, and that that is what I lead from. And for me, I, because of what makes sense to me, um, you know, because of the beauty of the type of witchcraft that feels right to me, the beauty of the natural magic that feels right to me, um, and the central role that mythology and folklore plays in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's what I lead from, right? That that's mm-hmm. where I go. I am not mm-hmm. like an occultist. I don't write occult books. I don't identify as pagan. Um, you know, I am like a, I am a social psychologist. I am, you know, someone who is concerned with helping others to have a more meaningful, more fulfilling, more real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I hope, and I knew I wanted to write one herbal. Don't ever expect another herbal from me because I <laughs> lean from even the, this book Although the, you know, I've certainly um, know what I'm talking about in terms of practicing plant medicine, that this book 
is a psycho-spiritual book, mm-hmm. right? It takes mm-hmm. you on a journey um, about connecting with the green world that mm-hmm. also has these practical things. You know, it's, it's a, that's what I lead from. So my next book is actually going to, and the first book, the Keeping Your Keys book, well, I should say that's the, my second book because my first book was True Magic. Um, but my second book, Keeping Your Keys, that I really wanted to, to develop a program that anybody could do that was enchanted by the goddess Hecate and wanted to live a better life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I wanted. It's So if you wanted an occult book about Hecate, well, of course, you're going to be disappointed by that book because that ain't what the book is. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. using ritual and natural magic and mythology um, within the context of Hecate to explore who you are and to help mm-hmm. you perhaps become more holy yourself. Right. Like and supported by deep academic research. Like there's quite a literature review in keeping her keys of, you know, like that bibliography is, is, you know, so let's not undersell that there's also, I mean, you, you have brought uh, another level of, I don't, I don't want to say credibility, but I, I mean, another level of um, resurfacing the depth that has always been there. You, you go in deeply into the Chaldean oracles. You, you bring in feminist scholarship from multiple decades. I mean, Let's not let's not downplay that that yeah, book is right. like You're right. yeah. But- it's not just not only is it not a cult, it is a it's it's a a, a, a small little tour de force of uh, you know both um, psycho spiritual academic historic mythoarchaeological research all brought together into like a pretty handy how to for somebody to pick up and like it's very accessible. Well, thank you. So what's next? We're going to go into Hecate's cave next. So in 2023, we are, so I teach a ritual cycle in my school um, that is inspired by the great rites of Eleusis that involve Demeter, Persephone, and arguably that Hecate was a very important part of this as the space in between the mother and daughter duo that she was the God to, you know, she was the one that was the space in between, which is a very hard mm-hmm. concept for us mm-hmm. to wrap our heads around. We want to call her a crone, but you know, like to be like, to kind of try to see how they would have seen Hecate is not as an old woman. Right. Mm-hmm. She was very different, almost like what we might see an auntie. Mm-hmm. Right. You mm-hmm. know, like not really a specific age. Right? Godmother kind godmother, of godmother, right? Been, like yeah, very mm-hmm. godmother, helping mm-hmm. making it all work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do those. Those are th- it's three rituals. We do them in the school over eight months. Um, and I also wanted to bring them in a DIY kind of way because mm-hmm. I know the three constructs of uh, release, soul retrieval, and psycho spiritual rebirth that those done, those can be done on your own in a caring way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that book really gets into that. There's a lot of uh, depth psychology, of course, in it. Um, and 
you know, just go through, it, it's kind of like the how to, like, if you could join my school, like if I would distill it down into 80,000 words. So mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the a sacred daily ritual that sets off the book and so on. So I'm really excited about that book. And then I will, I may, I'm waffling a bit right now, write a final book about Hecate called Entering Hecate's Temple. Um, which will be much more about ascension and uh, becoming high priestess or other sacred title of your choosing of your own journey. <laughs> so mm. kind of an anti-hero's journey book mm. um, with ritual and so on. Are we and back to kind of anima mundi? So if, that, if the third, if entering Hecate's temple comes out, that is it for books. Okay, because <laughs> you have other things <laughs> that you'll want to write. I have, uh, yeah, I'd really like to write, I'd really like to apply my approach to archetypes. Mm. You know what I mean? Like my kind of, all right, so there's all this mythology and depth psychology, and then there's always going to be me who is like, well, I am an applied social psychologist, so let's make it practical, doable, mm -hmm. let's weave it into our busy lives where we can get, we can lean into these things to you know progress ourselves along our own journey so it's like the anti-hero okay. book okay can i i'm i'm making a fan request um any kind of archetypes work and you know this goes for like you know icons of this kind of industry you know carolyn mace you know wrote mm -hmm. archetypes to, to all you know they're always missing one and I see sometimes they try to massage into something else. The one they're always missing is the salesman, oh, the marketer, the, you know, and the, maybe that's the business person, but it's not really. It's a very, it's bardic and business together. There's the, the, the salesman archetype as a person who identifies as a salesman archetype and like has worked as a salesman in food and wine and um, spirits and things for a long time. I always feel kind of slighted by that, that it never shows up. So I think you as a business woman uh, and a person with a unique brand and who has, you know, been doing it, it, you know, I can hear right now, Frank Sinatra, my way is playing, yeah. you know, you've like done it your own way. I feel like you could do an entire thing on, on that particular archetype that has been so missing. And like, what does that mean, especially as a woman, when we are the inspirers, persuaders that, you know, the, the, and we get written out of bardic traditions because of um, patriarchy, but like we did it through songs. We did it through work songs. Mm -hmm. We've done it through uh, lullabies. We've done it through bedtime stories for children. I mean, these stories keep getting brought forward. I just, I feel like it's important. So I'm, that's my fan request is that whatever you write on archetypes has this, this thing about the one who, um, inspires movements and actions and you know the kind of mother jones type like right yeah anyway there's cool stuff to be said the that's my request the inspire i think it's interesting and this leads me just to thinking about like you know back to how you opened with what identities do you lead with and for me there aren't convenient terms for the identities i lead with 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I say, well, I would say if, some, if the word pharmaca meant today what it did 2,000 years ago, I would never call myself a witch. I would call myself a pharmaca. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what I actually, to me, that's the word that has the most truth. And then when you talk about, you know, like being someone who inspires others, um, you know, like we, like the influencer, I would, I hundred percent don't consider myself an influencer. I don't even know what that 100%. is. That is yeah. people who like get their hair done a lot. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. My I, hair I could too dirty. never be an influencer. <laughs> I have no sweet clue. I would be better. I would do better rebuilding the engine on my hybrid SUV than learn <laughs> than being an Instagram influencer. I have no. I like when, you know, like when I've got followers and success, like I do know how to share information in a certain way, but that idea of influencer, like, I don't think I'm an influencer. Um, so yeah, that would be interesting, but it would be like, you know, a, a collection of archetypes with exercises for engaging mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. um, in ways to work with them because, like when we talk about myths or when I reinterpret a myth or whatever it is we're doing to use these stories to help ourselves understand who we are better and to perhaps inspire others to find more meaning in their life. Like those stories are plucking at archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. Mithya is an archetype of a woman, of the violent woman. Mm-hmm. So there is that, and she's also the archetype of the shadow self, because for women in particular, violence is something that it's, you know, shoved way mm-hmm. into the shadows, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were grappling with archetypes as well. Mm-hmm. So Medea isn't the end all of the story. She is an expression of something much deeper. Mm-hmm. That is a universal cross-cultural um Cross times, social statuses, that there is a, you know, the universal of the violent woman, the universal, like you said, of the woman who can influence others, inspire others. Not a good mm-hmm. word for it. That's how uncomfortable we are with it in our culture. We don't have a word. That's how you know <laughs> when, when people are uncomfortable. It's not that we need no word. Um, right? There's no word for it. We'll call ourselves witches today because you know what? There wasn't a better word. Yeah. We claim that because that's mm-hmm. what we got. Because mm-hmm. mediums got a bad rap in the 80s, in the mm-hmm. like in because of spiritualism, sorry, pre-80s. Um mm-hmm. and then you know, it's like we just needed a word, and we just mm-hmm. what? It's a good one. <laughs> um there was no word. Sorceress sounds kind of hokey dokey. Um yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. We need more robes if we're going to be sorcerers. Right? So it's like, we don't have words. We need to just make up words, which I do all the time in my books, because it's like, there is no word. Um, I don't even remember what your question is at this point. I'm just riffing. It. Well, this is where we're going next. Okay, well, let, it's time for us to wrap up. You know, I usually ask about grief and rage. I did it last time. This time, I would like to know, where are you finding the most joy these days? I am... Finding the most joy these days. Well, for me, this is always a happy time of the year because a big chunk of my house is full of um, little pots, me trying to spread seeds. Yeah. So I find a lot of joy with that. I love, I just love doing that. Um, 
And the plant of the month coming up in my school, the Covina Institute, is my primary plant spirit, mugwort. So I am <laughs> all in with <laughs> mugwort all the time. So I'm getting a lot of joy from that as well. Mm. And yeah, just just joy in moving beyond being someone's mother 24 seven. Finding joy in that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know what? I can just do my thing. <laughs> drive anybody anywhere. Yeah. They can all feed themselves and take care of themselves. And you know what I can do? What I wish. <laughs> it's great. That is life goals. That is living it, the dream. It is. Right? Like after you had, till I had my oldest son when I was very, very young. So I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to just do what I want. Nice. And here on Cindy's Island doing yes. Cindy things. <laughs> I love it. I now love it. Well, welcome. <laughs> I am so glad that you made time in your life of leisure and writing to, to, <laughs> to jam on the Numinous podcast again. Um, I love it. I love your work. I I just, I feel so lucky and honored to know you and have you come on the show and share your wisdom and like get to kind of look between the lines and like really get, you know, between the covers with, with how your creative process unfolds. I love your mind. So thank you so much for sharing with me and well, with everyone. You. Thanks. For I love talking to you. It's always great when we get together. Oh, it is always great when we get together. I just love our conversations. And I'm so glad we got to capture that and and share it with the world. To be honest, I I don't know what to tell you about show notes because I'm in a bit of transition with my podcast feed and pod site and website decisions need to be made. But for now, I guess we'll say what we always say, which is find the show notes and links to Cindy and her work at numinouspodcast.com. If one day you find that you go there and you're not able to find them, I'm guessing a Google search will go a really long way. Um, But I will say this, as always, I want to do a listener shout out. Thank you to my listeners in Virginia. This week, you are the global hotspot for numinous podcast downloads. I don't know, either like a handful of you are absolutely binging on this show right now, or there are legit like hundreds of listeners in Virginia with time to listen this week. I don't know, but there's something numinous in the water in Virginia, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. It's totally delightful. If you want to know what I'm up to, follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola. If you want to hang out with me online every week in different online live events, do some group somatics, some you know, all kinds of stuff. Join my Numinous Network. And if you want to know about upcoming in-person events this summer and fall 2022, including book launch events, sign up for my newsletter. You'll be the first to know. And spots, as you can imagine, are very limited, my friends. To sign up for my newsletter or to join the network, just start by going to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.